Hello and welcome to the ACA Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on online meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to introduce our speaker tonight, Kevin from Santa Barbara, California. I'm Kevin. I'm an adult child. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'd like to thank Adam and uh, Julie for inviting me to share my experience and hope. It's always a privilege uh, to be asked to be of service. I want to welcome any newcomers uh, to ACA. This work is hard, but if you stick with it, uh, you will see some beautiful changes in all your relationships and you may find some peace. I'd like to start with a quote from the Big Red Book on page 360, which will explain a little bit um, why I share and why I'm here and why I attend meetings. Uh, page 360, when we share even our smallest triumph or success in a meeting, we encourage one another to persist in the difficult process of recovery. And that's what's... Uh, been keeping me coming back for all this time. I've been in ACA just a little over four years. I didn't know anything about ACA, although um, I have been in a 12-step recovery program. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I attended an ACA meeting with my wife to support her and find out what it was about. And as with many people, uh, the moment I heard the laundry list, the 14 traits, I identified with every one of them immediately. After some time of being sober and coming into ACA, I, you know, I was kind of stuck in a rut. I was in this funk where I was sober, but not all the promises were coming true. I mean, some of them were, and my life had gotten so much better as a result of not drinking anymore. But in AA, they talk a lot about emotional sobriety and how that's kind of the goal. Um, after about a year, you know, you're physically sober, but um, the real goal and the work is done up here. And it's a spiritual um, program, just like in here. I love that we say that this is a, a spiritual program based on action coming from love. Uh, the thing about um, AA is they don't tell you a lot about how to attain that uh, emotional sobriety. And so that's kind of where I was. I was in this rut where I wasn't drinking and my life was getting better, but um, I was still emotionally, like I said, stuck in a rut. There wasn't a lot of progress in that because when we start drinking, we, we stunt ourselves emotionally. Emotionally, I was immature. So since I started drinking when I was about 11, I had the emotional maturity of about an 11 or 12 year old. I grew up feeling uh, like an only child, even though I had an older half sister. It's kind of like that line from the Black Crows song. You know, she tells you that she's an orphan after you meet her family. And that's kind of how I felt um, growing up was that I was an only child. I was the youngest of all of my cousins. Um, my dad's side of the family were our Mormons, and it was their habit in those days to all live together. So on my block, where I grew up in Orange County, 
Um, my, my dad's sister and her family lived across the street, two, three doors down. My dad's um, brother lived with his wife and her, their three daughters. My grandparents lived a bike ride away, just four or five blocks away. And then other cousins and um, aunts and uncles started moving in around us. So within one block, I mean, almost a third of the block was our family. I was part of the people that I grew up with. And again, I was the youngest of all the cousins and I was doted on and I was thought of as the golden child and, you know, I had so much potential and I just, I, I didn't, I didn't feel that way, but I kind of felt it all coming at me. And so I was never alone growing up. I, I always had, um, you know, cousins and to play with and to be around, but there were also prying eyes, you know, you could never get away with anything on that street because, Aunt Marion was across the street and she would see her if I was up the street riding my bike playing with the other neighbor kids. My Aunt Edda would see what was going on and it all got back to my parents. So you couldn't you couldn't get away with anything. But it wasn't a, a bad childhood. It's just early on, what it was like is that there were a lot of secrets. My mom was born in Germany during the war, actually before the war, grew up during the war. And um, all of her family was over in Germany, so I never really had any exposure to um, her side of the family, except for her grandmother and her aunt who would come over. And of course, it was always a big event. We would go to the LAX airport to pick them up and we'd make a big deal about it. And at first, of course, I had this loving grandma again who doted on me and, and loved me and, and treated me like I was special and all of this. But I could never understand anything that she was saying because she spoke German and she and my mom would speak German and I would hear my name in the conversation. So I knew they were talking about me, but I never knew what was being said. So I grew up early on not knowing what the dynamic was that was going on. Was it something good? Was it something bad that was being said about me? And that led to a lot of mystery. I never saw my parents be openly affectionate with each other. I never saw them fight. I never really heard them fight until the end when close to the time when they got a divorce when I was about 11 or 12, but they were never openly affectionate with each other. Um, you know, hugging and kissing and honey, how are you? And how was your day? And all that kind of stuff. And there was no physical abuse in my family. I can vividly recall the only two times that I was hit once each by one of my parents. Um, my mom hit me because I had accidentally killed a pet hamster and my dad hit me when we were in a hardware store and we were looking for something and I found what it was he was looking for and I said, they're over here, you idiot. And the next thing I remember was I got the back of his hand on the, on the top of my head. It's the only two times I was ever hit. There was no corporal punishment and I think my parents did that because I later found out through this program and talking to family members and hearing stories at family reunions that my dad's side of the family, his father, and probably my mom's mother, my grandmother, were both very physically um, and verbally abusive to them. So I think when I was born, they made that resolution like we hear so often in Europe. I'm never going to do that to my kids. And to their credit, they didn't. It was the only two times I was ever hit. But towards the end, when they just before they got a divorce, I could see there was a division going on. That again, there wasn't a lot of talking. Um, 
affectionate uh, sharing back and forth between the two of them. So I just I didn't have a, a real good role model for what a loving family looked like. I grew up in the 70s watching, you know, Brady Bunch and the Osmonds and things like that. So I knew that that wasn't our family and I didn't necessarily think that that's the way it should be. But later on, it was I kind of wanted it. There was something in me that was I felt that it, that there was something lacking. And there's another quote from the big book that I like that says, when children struggle to control the devastating effects of domestic trauma to avoid or minimize the damage, we are injured in three critical ways, corporally cor compromised, mentally fragmented, spiritually dejected. By their inability to manage the disintegrating family and constant threat, we unknowingly took responsibility for our parents' feelings and poor behavior. This mistaken perception, born in childhood, is the root of our codependent behavior as adults. We developed a dependent false self that constantly seeks outward affection, recognition, or praise, even though we believe we don't deserve it. So that's how I grew up. And then my, um, my father and um, mom got a divorce, and it was a rather strange divorce. My dad left my mom for another woman. And I think I could have accepted that um, as it was over time, even though I was upset and I cried when he left, but he left my mom for someone I knew. It was my favorite aunt by marriage, uh, who was married to my mom's brother. So she was an aunt by marriage. She wasn't my blood aunt. So there wasn't anything weird going on, but, uh, my dad left my mom for another woman. And as I said, it wasn't like a secretary at at work or a stewardess or some strange woman. This was a woman who bathed me, changed my diapers, babysat me, raised me, and was my favorite aunt. Every Halloween, my sister and I would go over there to get our picture taken in our costumes, and we would each get one of those giant Hershey bars. So I loved going to her house first on Halloween. She was my favorite aunt. She spoiled me. My uncle was like one of my favorite uncles, and it was partly because he wasn't part of my dad's family who were, I considered sort of less than I, you know, they were like the Beverly hillbillies to me. And we were more like, I don't know, well, something better. So uh, when that happened, it was devastating. And I was actually the one that discovered that my dad was doing this. I re rode my bike around the block. Like I said, they were all lived really close and discovered um, my dad's car in the driveway with all of my aunt and uncle's furniture in the in the driveway in a U-Haul truck parked outside. And I ran, rode my bike home really quick and told my mom what I'd seen. And she got on the phone right away and started speaking to her brother in German. So I knew something bad was going on. And then it wasn't soon after that that my dad had told me, you know, I'm going to move Gisela into the house with us and we're going to get married. And it was just devastating to me. And it began this long cycle I, I shared the other night of this duality. Uh, my mom, with some help from her grand, from her mother, uh, decided to start a new career and become a nurse. So she went to school. She worked two jobs to support herself and support me. Um, again, I never lacked for anything. We always had food on the table. I always had relatively new clothes for school. Um, we never lacked for anything, but 
what was lacking in my life was my mom's attention and love and support and encouragement as I was growing up because this was like the most developmental important stage of my life. I was 11, 12, I was going into puberty, I was getting ready to start junior high school and all of those changes that we go through going into our teenage years. And my mom just wasn't there. She was, she worked night shifts so she could get the shift differential to make a little extra money. And she took any opportunity she could to work. So when she wasn't in school, she graduated. And I was so proud of her that she did this, became a registered nurse. And she worked in the ER for, I don't know, 15, 18 years. She saw a lot of trauma. And one of my responsibilities was when I was old enough to drive was I could use the car, but I had to be there at the hospital at night to pick her up when she got off her shift at 11.30, midnight, whatever it was. But as a consequence, I had absolutely no parental supervision and I had a lot of responsibility. I had to grow up very quickly. My own meals, I did my own grocery shopping, I did my own laundry, I cleaned the house. You know, again, I was responsible for picking her up and sometimes taking her to work. So, you know, I, I lost my childhood. I pretty much, I had to grow up right away. Which again, at the time, I thought was really great because I always felt like I was born at the wrong time. I always, most of my friends were my sister's friends. Most of my friends were older. I wanted to be older. I felt like I should have been born 10 years earlier, that I had just missed the 60s. And that I, I, I just, I related to people who were older than me better than I did with my peers. And part of that was because, again, in grade school and growing up, I was always told that I was different, that I was weird, that I was a nerd, that I was a weirdo, you know, I just, I didn't fit in because I didn't play sports and I didn't do all the other things that the kids in, in, in my class did. I, my recess, by the time I was in fourth or fifth grade, my recess, I went to the library. I would isolate. I already started isolating. I would go to the library and read and I would, you know, I, I just, I wanted to, I liked school because I liked soaking up all the knowledge, but I mean, I pretty much read everything that there was worth reading at or above my grade level by the time I was in sixth grade. So I already had started isolating. My room was my sanctuary. I started listening to music. I got a great stereo system and I escaped into music. And then it wasn't long after that. I was around the same time as the divorce that I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And it was the solution to everything because it was allowed me to numb my feelings. It allowed me to not, it, because I couldn't express how I was feeling and the frustration and anger and resentment and all of those negative emotions that I had against my parents and what was going on in my life, I could take a drink or I could smoke a joint and all of that would go away. I could put my headphones on and listen to rock and roll and that was my world. And I would write. I did a lot of writing. Um, that was part of my dream was that I was going to become a writer. And, you know, one of the few times my father gave me direction, I told him I want to be a writer. And he liked what I had written. He said, yeah, you, you were actually really good. So there was some encouragement. And he said, but now you have to find a way to get paid for it. So how can you get paid to write? And so I hit on this idea of becoming a newspaper reporter and this was in the days of course before the internet or even cnn 
So I thought, oh, well, I could go to work for UPI or AP or the New York Times or the Chicago whatever Tribune, and they'll pay to send me all around the world, and I can see the world on somebody else's dime, travel and write about it and make a living at it. And so that was my first real big goal was I was going to become a journalist. And But again, there was no, never any discussion about college or my plans for after high school. My parents never were like, you know, oh, well, we've saved up a little bit of money. We can't support you, but, you know, we have a college fund for you. Or what do you want to do when you graduate high school? There was none of that. None of that. And it partly could have been because they knew, or at least my mom was probably aware that I was using drugs and I was already starting on a bad path. So right after I graduated high school, I got a job locally at a retail store just to support myself. And by this time, my mom was on her third husband. She had found someone, a plastic surgeon who was rather wealthy living up in Bakersfield. And I don't know if she fell in love with him. She probably didn't, but... Uh, he was an alcoholic and in AA, you know, we never supposed to say anybody's an alcoholic unless they admit it. But I can tell you, this guy was an alcoholic. He was a, a nasty, ugly, mean drunk. And she decided she wanted to marry him. And that's part of my mom's whole story, her codependency, her Al-Anon issues or whatever. But every boyfriend she had between the time she left my dad up until she met this guy. We're all alcoholics. And that was the first time I ever heard about AA was one of her boyfriends would, oh, I have to go to a meeting. And oh, she would say, you need to call your sponsor or you should go to a meeting. And I didn't really know what AA was. I thought it was like this religious thing. And so I, you know, I had all this contempt prior to investigation about it. But anyway, that's, again, an outside issue. But here I was an alcoholic. I mean, going into my 20s, I was already drinking pretty much every week. And my mom had given me the option when she decided to marry this guy of either staying in Southern California and she and my dad somehow coming together to put me up in an apartment or getting a dorm room or something and going to a local college. Me moving in with her or moving to Bakersfield with her and her new husband who I hated or moving in with my dad and I didn't like any of those options during this time I had found the Renaissance Fair right here south of Santa Barbara in Agoura California and um, also they have a, a place up in Northern California and I said nope fourth option I'm moving to San Francisco because I had taken a trip with a friend up to UC Santa Cruz to take him to college. And I, we spent a day or two in San Francisco and I fell in love with the city, partly because they would let me drink. I bought an open Heineken off the street and walked around with a crab cocktail and an open Heineken. And I said, I have found where I need to be. There was a music scene going on there. And so I fell in love with San Francisco and I struck out on my own. And my parents pretty much abandoned me at that point because I had abandoned them. There was so much resentment and hatred towards them. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. And it was like, get out of my life. You weren't there for me. And I just took off. And it, it was unfortunate. I reconciled with my both my parents. My mom's dead now. But um, she never saw me get sober, which is one of my greatest regrets. On page six, it says, as children and teens, we were not given a true or consistent example of love. So how can we know love or recognize it as adults? And that's where I was at. All of this that I told you, my story brought me to this point to where after I got sober, like I said, I still 
hadn't figured out how to deal with life. I had no real social coping skills. I had no mechanisms, no tools, even with the 12 steps of how to have a healthy relationship. And I had all of those traits. I was uh, fear of authority figures. And I could make anybody an authority figure, everything from a girlfriend to the law, a judge, a policeman, to my employer, my parents still. So I was struggling with authority figures. I was a rescuer, you know. I would find girls that were in trouble or needed help, and I would rescue them because then they would have to love me because I saved them or I did something for them. So there was always this, you know, reciprocity that I needed. I needed to get love. If I if I do this for you, then you, then you have to love me. And none of the relationships that I had were healthy or long-term. I, I discovered that I was, you know, I was seeking... It, mostly affirmation and recognition and and confirmation that I was lovable. And once um, I would have sex with them, it might last three weeks or three months or six months. Prior to getting married, the longest relationship I had was nine years. And the last three years were a living hell because we were just so enmeshed in a codependent relationship. We were codependent financially, emotionally, uh, we were both doing drugs together, so it was just it was a uh, it was a train wreck, and I should have gotten out of it a lot sooner than I did. But that's how how I lived my life. I, I I had these unhealthy relationships, and I couldn't deal with life on life's terms. Even though even after I got sober, I still was having a hard time. I was reacting all the time to. Um, situations when I'd get frustrated or angry and I would take out my emotions or my frustration or whatever on those around me who I love, including my wife. And I wasn't treating her very well and I didn't think that was fair. So when I came into ACA and I discovered that this was a bundle that was handed to me, this was really not my fault, that this abandonment by my parents and this neglect and the verbal abuse um, led me to basically be stunted and what's the other one where it talks about we stuff our feelings because it hurts so much to talk about I could to this day I still have a hard time talking about my feelings and expressing how I how I truly feel um, so yeah on page 355 the attitude of abuse that underlies all addictive behavior dominates the family and children learn to accept that in others and themselves Children look to authority to help them define what is real and to make a sound make sound decisions in relating to others. It gives them confidence in developing their own ability to effectively live in the world. I never had this. No wonder I couldn't function. I had self-destructive behavior and developed survival skills, which is basically the laundry list that I've been going over. So the, the work that I'm trying to do now is recognize that what I still carry around is that critical parent. Uh, I'm a perfectionist. It's another one of my character flaws um, because I never feel like it's good enough and that I have to do it absolutely right or I won't get the recognition or I won't get the praise that I feel I deserve. Um, I, I, the, the, the coping mechanisms or the, the survival skills that I developed were as a d direct result of of not having the the I guess like I said encouragement 
that I thought I I should be getting as uh, as a child with with my parents. I never had. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about my father. I, I never really had like a good male role model either. You know, um, I had to teach myself how to shave. I had to read the Norelco manual on how to use an electric razor because my dad wasn't there to, you know, tell me how to shave. And I, I didn't know how to relate to women. So that's, you know, part of my drinking was because I needed the courage to be able to go talk to women because, again, I'm putting them in an authority position that they have power over me. They have something I want and I don't know how to ask for it in a, in a healthy, loving way. I don't know how to relate to them. So I would drink and then I would get the courage up and I, I probably failed miserably, which is why I didn't have any good relationships. So living now as an adult with all of these stunted feelings and inability to relate to others has been a real struggle for me. And I was hoping to find the solution here in ACA because I found a group of people that when I talk about these things, they can relate and they can say, oh yeah, I had that too. Or I, I understand how you feel, which is what I got when I first got sober. It was like, nobody understands us like those who've lived what, what we lived through. And I started going to a lot of meetings and listening to a lot of um, speakers but I found that there was a lot of physical and sexual and emotional abuse, which I just didn't feel that I suffered. And I started to question whether or not I belonged here because I didn't really suffer that. And I had to do a lot of soul searching and some deep work into trying to remember because a lot of those bad memories were, were hidden and had been stuffed and suppressed and repressed. But it's all starting to come out now. So the the, the buried memories and feelings are starting to return. And that's one of the rewards, I think, of this program. Admitting that I have these characteristics, that I have these traits, was huge for me. So coming out of denial and coming out of isolation and being able to talk about this stuff and have people acknowledge, yes, that's, that's real, it, it's valid, it, it has worth and it is affecting you as an adult. I know connecting um, with my inner child is really the biggest goal. It's the one who was abandoned and left behind and it's the key to unlocking my painful past that I haven't wanted to face. It's, it's also blocked me from becoming the true self and, and living in the promises. But I have to get rid of that critical parent first. And that's really the hardest part for me right now is telling that critical parent to shut up or to convert that critical parent into a loving parent, to having that voice say, it's okay, you're human, you made a mistake. You're not perfect. Nobody needs you to be perfect. You know, this is a learning process. Everything is a learning experience. Your whole life has been a learning experience. Learn from this and move on. You're enough. You're worth it. You're good enough. You're doing your best. And that's what I needed to hear. I still need to hear that, is that it's okay that I'm doing my best and I stumble and I make mistakes. And, you know, sometimes I have to learn things two or three times before it finally really sinks in. And then maybe... 
maybe that loving parent can bring out that inner child and talk to that inner child and ask, what is it you need? What is it you didn't get? And how can I help you find that? I found a lot of peace in these rooms in 12-step recovery. And one of the greatest things for me has been the honesty because for so long I denied my feelings and I denied all of the harm that I caused. So it was difficult for me to, in AA, when I first went through the 12 steps, was to be honest that I'm, you know, I'm flawed and I have all of these character defects and things that prevented me from getting in touch with what's really inside of me and what I really want and what I need. And now here in ACA with the program, with the 12 steps, with the, with the workbook, learning to get in touch with those needs and those wants and then being able to express them, being able to say, I need a little bit of sympathy or I need some recognition or I need some praise or I just need a little bit of encouragement or some hope or let's work on this dream together, things like that. Um, because I didn't have that support when I was growing up. My sister graduated uh, from high school early, and she took off, so she wasn't there for me. And we don't have a bad relationship, but we're not very close right now. I mean, not only in miles, but we're just not close. I don't feel that I can open up to her. But when I joined the Renaissance Fair, I found a lot of people that I could relate to, and I sort of adopted them as my family, and now I have... Um, an older friend who I've known for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, and I'm closer to her than I am my real sister. And when Monica and I got married, I told her, I said, this is your sister-in-law. If you want to know anything about me or if you want to know what goes on inside of Kevin's head and in his heart, ask her because she knows. Because I sh would share things with her that I wouldn't share with anybody else. And then I have a really good friend I've known for over 35 years who's my brother from another mother. I mean, I've known him. We've been through thick and thin together. He's been through a couple of divorces. We lived together. We didn't live together. Um, and his mom is, she just, she treats me like one of her sons. And so I have these people in my life who've been there and supported me, but they're not family. They're not blood family. I don't really have anybody left in my blood family that I can relate to. Now I'm really grateful that my father is still alive and it was only just recently like i said in the last 10 years that i was able to make amends to him and we have a relationship now that i would never thought that i would have had but it was a direct result of me doing the work in my other program and then the same thing with his wife i made amends with her and she was the evil wicked stepmother for 10 15 years of my life and if you had told me 20 years ago that I would have the relationship I have with her now, I would have said, you're insane. I'm never going to forgive that woman. I'm never going to be able to have a relationship with her. But I do. And it's developing and it's growing. And part of that is me becoming an adult and not being that petulant child anymore. So one of the things that I do right now, I shared this the other day in a meeting also, is, you know, I have to stop pause and ask myself when I'm not feeling right, when I'm, as we say, disturbed or when I'm upset, I have to ask myself, how old am I right now? Am I six? Am I eight? Am I that 12-year-old? Am I that rebellious teenager? 
Am I that confused 20-year-old college student who doesn't know what he wants and where to go and what the future is going to look like? I have to stop and ask myself, how old am I right now? And then I try and get in touch with some kind of loving voice. Right now, it's my higher power. You know, I turn everything over to a God of my understanding, which the 12 steps of recovery have brought me. Again, if you had told me 20 years ago that I'd be living a spiritual life with spiritual principles, I would have said, no, I'm, I'm not religious. Well, I've discovered that religion and spirituality are two different worlds and that I can incorporate this and that and this and build my own spirituality, my own version of what a higher power is to me. And we talk and we relate. I check in every morning with my higher power. I do my prayers and meditation. I start out my day, you know, saying, what can I do to help others? And I need your help. And so that's that's what I do when I get stuck. I, I ask for help and guidance and strength. So that connection I have with my higher power is probably the most revolutionary change in my life these days. The other thing that um, really works for me is gratitude. Just being grateful, even for the simple things which I wasn't in the past. I took a lot of things for granted and I took advantage of a lot of people. And so now, um, you know, like Warren Zevon said, when he found out he had cancer, I'm just grateful for every ham sandwich because none of us know how long we're going to be here. And this last year of the pandemic has really put a lot of weight on me, uh, realizing my own mortality. Um, we've suffered some losses. I just, we just lost our little rescue girl dog six months ago, and it was unexpected. It was out of nowhere. And I dealt with that grief by reliving a lot of the grief that came up when my mom committed suicide. My mom uh, killed herself uh, unexpectedly. It wasn't like she was terminally ill. There weren't any real signs that um, she was depressed or anything. It just, I got a phone call from somebody actually a stranger told me but i called my sister and she's the one that told me i was living in cambria at the time my sister was living i don't remember up north somewhere in la la i think and i never i i mean i cried and i grieved over my mom and but you know i kind of moved on i went through the stages of grief pretty quickly and i just accepted it you know she wasn't around there were a few times when like i'd get a new job or something good would happen in my life and I'd say, oh, I should call my mom and tell, oh, I can't, you know. Um, but I never cried so much over this little dog as I did for my mom. So I think it was a lot of that past grief that was just never expressed because when my mom died is when my alcoholism really took off. I mean, I was drinking pretty much a fifth of scotch every day. And my life was just falling apart. I went into the deepest, darkest parts of my alcoholism. And so when I read, you know, the 14 traits and I heard them and they said, it, we are para-alcoholics, even if we don't pick up a drink, I didn't immediately identify with 13 and 14 because I was like, I was an alcoholic. And that was my solution for so many years. Um, but I realized that maybe now I was still a para-alcoholic. I was still reacting and acting like an alcoholic, even though I was sober. You know, I was like right on the verge of becoming a dry drunk. Even though I was going to meetings and I had a sponsor and I was being of service and I was sponsoring other people, I almost felt like I was a dry drunk, that it just wasn't getting apart from my spiritual program. And that's why it's number one in my life right now.
And the, the third thing is trying to connect with that inner child by doing a little bit of journaling. And I, uh, I wanted to, to expand on this um, non-dominant handwriting, uh, doing art, um, artwork and things. We did some exercises with our grief counselor that I found very helpful uh, to help get through our grief that also helped me connect with my inner child because it was that whole period from about like six up until about 12 years old when the divorce happened that is almost a blank for me. I just, I cannot recall with any kind of clarity those, those six years. I remember what my life was like before when I was very, very young and life was beautiful and I was this golden child. You know, I heard uh, it was a kind of a joke on Facebook right around Halloween where somebody was going to go wearing one of their old concert t-shirts from the 70s and a ripped up pair of jeans and every time somebody said well what are you supposed to be you could say I was supposed to be a lot of things and that's kind of how you know the last 20 years of my life was is uh, there were so many expectations placed on me that I should be a doctor or I should be a lawyer or I should be a politician or I should do this but there was never any encouragement and there was never any direction. And I, I didn't realize that until I came in here and I started working on the memories and stuff. And certainly nothing from my father because I only saw him on weekends. Now, lately, in the past 10 or 15 years, um, my dad got the trust in me to ask me to come and work for his family business up in Cambria where they ran a motel. And that's how I met my wife. We met there in, in Cambria. Even though as children, we grew up not that far from each other in Orange County. So, you know, 35 years, 40 years later, we had to move to this little teeny town of Cambria, 5,600 people, to find each other. And for the first time in my life, I found someone where I didn't feel like I had to rescue them. And I was happy that she was in recovery as well, that she had a spiritual program, that she understood the spiritual principles of 12-step recovery. And, you know, we do our best to, to, to live our life based on that, but it's still a struggle. And I find that the, the things that I'm learning here in ACA and sticking with the program and, and learning about how to communicate feelings and stuff has really opened up um, my ability to have a relationship with another human being where I didn't before. This is, I had to warn her. I said, you know, this is the first relationship I've been in where I've been thoroughly present thoroughly sober and I'm not in it for a selfish end that I want to live and, and love and grow with another human being solely for the experience not because I want to get something out of it or I I get something in return I feel that it, it could be an, an equal and mutually beneficial partnership and then this is the first time and I don't know how to do this partly because I was an alcoholic and partly because I never learned or had a good example of a loving relationship or a family. My parents weren't that way and none of the relationships I had were that way. So I had starting basically from scratch and I've shared as kind of a joke in other meetings before about everything I learned from love. I learned from rock and roll lyrics and TV shows and movies. That's, you know, what I saw on TV, what I saw in the movies, what I heard the Beatles singing about in love love me do that's what i thought love was i'd never really experienced true love now i knew what lust was if i saw a cute girl i knew i wanted to get in bed with her but i didn't it wasn't love 
as long as I was getting my needs met, then I was happy. I never really had any consideration for the other person's feelings. And so again, being an ACA and hearing other people share about their experiences and, and their trauma and their anguish and abuse, it just really opened up my heart and allowed me to connect with people in a way that I never thought that I could, even more so in the other 12-step program. So I'm really grateful that I found ACA and I continue to do the work as much as I, as much as I can. Um, I think I've told you enough about my story. Like I said, I'm still working on these feelings and buried memories returning and coming to terms with the unhealthy aspects of my childhood. Yeah, so now what I'm doing, like I said, is trying to quiet the critical parent, trying not to react and asking myself, oh yeah, where? not only how old am I, but where am I right now? I'm trying to bring myself into the here and now, as it says. And understanding where these behaviors come from. Again, the, these were learned behaviors. And although I don't have a lot of communication with my sister and I don't know a lot about my mom's side of the family, I'm starting to understand that her mother, the German one that would come over, um, you know, even in German, you can understand berating language. You can understand violent talk. And that's what I would hear from my grandmother. And back in the day, I would just kind of ignore it because I didn't understand the words. But now that I recall some of those instances, I understand that my mom was probably verbally, emotionally abused as well from her from her mother. So it's just, that's where these behaviors come from. My parents, again, they never hit me, but they didn't have a lot of coping skills or parenting skills either. And so that got passed on to me. Um, I did name it and not blame it. So again, trying to identify and be honest about the feelings and the things that are going on with me emotionally and recognizing triggers and my triggering behavior. So, um, I always said, if you want to learn about your character defects, either get married or sponsor people, because you will certainly learn all about your character defects when you're in close emotional contact with another human being and you're sharing the true inside, deep down emotions and what drives us as people. You know, what is the motivation behind this behavior? So again, I have to do that pause and ask myself, how old am I? Where am I? Why am I reacting? Oh, well, this is how my mom's react, or this was my dad's explanation or rationalization for this or for that. And I can trigger my wife just as easily. I do things that trigger her with, with her parental behavior, and I don't realize that that's what's going on. So again, we have to be honest and open with each other and say, hey, when you talk that way to me, you sound like my dad and I get defensive. Or when, when you talk that way to me, you sound like my mom and I want to shut down and I don't want to share what I'm feeling because that was my defense mechanism in the past. Um, again, I would, I would isolate and, and go into my, my little world of rock and roll and fantasy and, you know, just shut myself in my room and read a book or listen to an album and um, and then later on, like I said, it you know became the drugs and alcohol, and I could completely shut off the outside world and just live inside in here. But it's a nasty, dark place in here, and I need help exploring those dark, deep corners of 
of my mind and my recollection and my memory. I don't want to do this alone. So that's why I keep coming back to meetings. And as I said, when we share our experience, strength, and hope, and we hear those little successes of each one, we can encourage and love one another just as each one is. We just accept each other for who we are. Also on page 360 is a quote that says, the need for loving reflection and constant consistent care that was tragically missing from our families is met by the love we receive from others, other members of our program. So that's kind of what I wanted the topic be for tonight, but mostly what I really wanted to focus on is not so much people's past and stories, because as I said, there's not much we can do about that except explore it, accept it, be honest about it, and say, this is what was handed to me, and I, I don't want to use this tool anymore. I don't want this coping mechanism anymore. This survival skill no longer serves me. I need to work to be rid of it. So what do we do today to stay in the here and now and realize where the behavior that we still have today comes from? Identifying, naming, and not blaming. And how do we work on that? How do we develop that loving parent, that way to encourage ourselves and give ourselves praise and acknowledgement that we didn't get as children, that we still need today, whether you're 16 or 36 or 60, we're still adult children. We, we don't have, or at least I don't have the coping mechanisms that I should have had at this age to be able to, to be that whole rounded, integrated human being and be able to identify that true self that lives inside each one of us, that's inside my heart and soul, that I know that is there. And I need to bring that out, coming to these meetings, working with others, sharing with sponsors and other people is what brings that out. But we have to create a safe space. So is that what it does for you? Do you need a, a, a safe space? Do you need to have a safe space where you feel you 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 can share that? Or have you found a home group or a place where you can share that? And there's maybe things that you're still afraid to bring out. And how do you do that? And how does that help you develop the adult child who's that integrated true self today? So I'll read this quote one more time. The need for loving reflection and consistent self-care that was tragically missing from our families is met by the love we receive from other members of our program. So, again, I could tell you more about what it was like, but that's not really why I'm here. We all have our own stories. We've all suffered trauma, abuse, and neglect. That's not who I am today. What I would like to hear um, people share about is who they are today and how they're developing their inner true loving parent and their true self that is that integrated whole human being that you can bring to the world that's full of compassion and love, understanding, patience, all of those good qualities that we wish we had had examples of, or at least I wish I had had examples of as a child. Thank you everyone for allowing me to share. It was a privilege to be here with you all, and I will mute now. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Thank you, Kevin. Kevin.
Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin, so much.